in your Bible this morning, the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, please. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5. The subject is the filling of the Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 15, and if you would stand with me, we'll look at God's Word together. Ephesians 5 and 15, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And what is the will of the Lord? Verse 18, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. And you may be seated. But be filled with the Spirit. I don't know if you've thought as I have about that first phrase there in that verse 18, but it's very strange, isn't it? When you think it's a strange thing indeed to be talking about drunkenness, be not drunk with wine, and then immediately mix that with the filling of the Spirit. I can't think of two things that are more opposites than to be drunk and to be filled with the Spirit. A very strange dichotomy here, a strange mixture of thought. The interesting thing is this is not the only place in the Bible where you will find this. And so if you will go to the book of Luke chapter 1 with me, you'll find this strange combination again. Luke chapter 1 and verse 15, the angel is speaking to the parents of John the Baptist and talking about the baby that would be born that we know as John the Baptist. He shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost for even from his mother's womb. Isn't it strange? He's not to drink wine or strong drink. He's not to get drunk, but he's to be filled with the Spirit. These two very opposite things mentioned together. And then we find it again. I go to the book of Acts chapter 2. And it's the day of Pentecost. And in verse 15 of Acts 2, these men are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It will come to pass in the last days, saith the Lord, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. So these people are not drunk. These people are filled with the spirit. And so we have this interesting mixture here of prohibition against being drunk and at the same time being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Why in the world would the Bible mix those two? Well, because you need to know a little background, and that is that the pagan worship of those days involved drunkenness almost every time. So, in the book of Ephesians 5, 18, where our text is today that we will look at a little more in detail. He warns us, don't be drunk with wine, negative, positive, but be filled with the Spirit. Throughout history, drunkenness has been a part of the pagan worship ceremonies. And that's why Paul said that. 
in the context of his day, he's saying, don't do what is the common practice and do what the Lord wants you to do, and that is be filled with the Spirit. So he's not talking here really about drunkenness or drinking at a party or at the corner bar or at home. He's talking about a religious use, believe it or not, of getting drunk. Isn't that incredible? You and I cannot conceive how people would call that a part of worship, but that's exactly what Paul's referring to. Now, when I talk about paganism, pagan worship, let me define that for you because I use the term often. In the Bible, you'll read in the New Testament a lot the word Gentiles, and you have Gentiles contrasted with Jews. But the Gentiles in the Bible are the pagans, the pagan people. And what it really means is people who worship idols and people who worship the spirits. It might be the spirits of their ancestors. It might be demonic, evil spirits. It might be Satan himself. But they worship idols and they worship spirit beings other than Almighty God and the Spirit, Holy Spirit, of course. And so the reason they did that, the pagans believed that the spirits of the gods actually indwelled an idol. So they, how they could do that is strange to you and me, but they could take their hands and make an idol a figure of some being, and they would put that being in their home or on a shelf or in a temple somewhere, and they actually believed that the spirit of the thing the idol represented would come and indwell that idol being. And so if it was an idol that represented the sun god, they would kneel before it, but they believed that the spirit of the sun god would come and inhabit that idol. And so they would offer gifts to it. They would pray to it. They would worship it for its power. It was a strange thing to us indeed. And they also believed that those spirits that indwell that idol could be communed with, that they could communicate with those spirits. They believed that if they got into a state of drunkenness, that there was a higher consciousness that they would reach, and the spirits of the idols and their spirit could communicate, that they would commune. What's interesting about it to me is today we use the term spirits to talk about distilled alcoholic beverages. And whiskey is distilled, and they call it the spirits of. It seems to me like it probably goes all the way back to those days. And so their idea was when we get drunk, we can commune with these spirits. We can't do that when we're in our rational mind. It was a near universal practice, too. It didn't just happen in ancient times in the Bible. If you go down to Mexico, the Mayan people down there, they drank this special brew that they had that would get them intoxicated, and then they would try to commune with their gods and their spirits. The Aztecs did the same. In Haiti, the practitioners of voodoo drink rum until they pass out, thinking that they can commune with the spirits. And you have it in the 
the North American and South American Indian tribes. In fact, even today, do you know the Hopfi Indians of Arizona, New Mexico, they uh, ingest peyote and other drugs to get into a state of higher consciousness so they can hopefully commune with the spirits that they worship in, in their tribal religion. They practiced this in the Far East. They practiced it in China and still do today. The idea that if I'm intoxicated, I reach a state of consciousness where the spirits of the gods that I worship can, in fact, commune with me. And in the Bible days, the largest of these cults was one called Dionysius. And the Romans had a name for that. They called it Bacchus. Bacchus, and you've heard that. We have festivals celebrating Bacchus around the world. Even today, Bacchus was the god of wine. And this cult of Dionysius, again, they thought if you get intoxicated and you get drunk, you get high, that the goddess of the wine or the god of the wine would communicate with you. And they took it even further than that. This was a debauched form of pagan worship, paganism. The worship consisted of drinking themselves drunk, and then in their temples they would eat to the point of gluttony. They would eat until they threw up. And then they would have sex with one of the temple prostitutes. You can see that everything that the flesh has an appetite for they practiced it in a debauched and depraved manner. Food, drink, sex, all involved in the worship of Dionysius. In fact, if you will uh, look at some of the archaeological records of that time, there are all these vases and plates and paintings and statues, and they all depict this, this uh, pagan religion. The statues have ears that are in the shape of a cluster of grapes, and they represent this pagan god. And even other scriptures in your Bible refer to it. If you'll read them in context, go over to 1 Peter with me, chapter number, 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, 1 Peter 4 and 3. For the time past in our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles or pagans, same word. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Now, Peter here is giving a listing of all of the wrong practices, the sinful practices that came out of these drunken banquets that they had. In verse 4, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them, that you don't practice this anymore to this same excess of riot. And they speak evil of you because you won't participate with them in their cults, if you will. And then you go back in your Bible, and, and I'm running you around in the Bible, but I want you to see this. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul also refers to it. 1 Corinthians 10 and 20, he says, I say unto you that the things that the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to the devils the demonic spirits, and not to God. And I would not have 
that you should have fellowship with devils. Now, here's what he's saying. Listen, get what he's saying. He's saying when you worship someone other than God in the form of an idol, you are worshiping demonic spirits. These people didn't know what spirit they were worshiping, and they were worshiping demons. And then he says in verse 21, don't come to the Lord's Supper and take the cup of the Lord while you're still practicing your drinking the cup of the devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. In other words, he's saying to them, you can't practice. You've got to come out from these ancient mystery cults, as they were called, and you have to decide who you're going to serve. If you go, if you go there, you're drinking the cup of the devil. And if you come to the Lord's Supper, you're drinking the cup of the Lord. And so you have to make a choice which God, in fact, you're going to serve. And so we go back to our text now, Ephesians 5 and 18. Don't be drunk with wine. He's talking about demonic worship. He's talking about paganism. But he says, be filled with the Spirit of God. And then he says, he talks about don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess, that little phrase there. And if you want to make a little notation in your Bible there, don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. The word excess means dissipation, dissipation. Don't get drunk because it leads to dissipation. Don't get drunk and think you're worshiping God. It leads to destruction, to self-destruction. And we all know the self-destructive behaviors of people who get caught up in that web of drunkenness. These rites in the ancient days were so debauched when Paul was writing about it. They're so debauched that the uh, Senate in Rome actually uh, outlawed the cult of Dionysius at one point. They said, these people are just are corrupting our whole society. They're so evil with this worship practice they have. And by the way, that idea that drunkenness leads to dissipation and debauchery and self-destruction, that's still true this morning. Now, I've been pretty hard on alcohol recently. I guess you think I'm on a kick, but I'm really not. I'm just, every time I talk about it, I open my Bible, don't I? I'm teaching you what the Bible says. And, you know, um, I had a friend who is a well-known preacher. I won't call his name. You all know him. And he was invited to preach at a staff retreat of a large Baptist church, I might add, in Texas. And he went there and he preached. And he said, I couldn't believe it at night. The staff would go and get together, and they would drink, and they would, um, they, they, they called it social drinking, but he said, it looked to me like it got pretty social. And he said, uh, I couldn't believe it. And he said, the guy, finally one of the guys said their bar tab that week for a Baptist staff uh, retreat, the bar tab was $700 for the week, for the two or three days. And does it lead to dissipation? Just about two months ago, the pastor of that church resigned for an inappropriate relationship with a woman in the church. Hmm. You think there's any connection? You think that when you start down one road, that that slippery slope might lead to another road and to more problems in your life? 
Thank you, Brother Bill, for that encouraging word, that exhortation here. Huh? <laughs> but we, we see that over and over and over, those of us who are trying to lead out in the Lord's work. So he says, don't be drunk with wine. It'll lead you down the path of self-destruction, but be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I want to do a little grammatical study here. I know you don't want an English lesson this morning, but I want to show you all that I have discovered in that verb, be filled with the Spirit. First of all, and if you're taking notes with me, it's in the imperative mode, imperative mode, which means it's a command. He's not suggesting this. He's not presenting this as an option. He's not asking you to pray about it or do a further study on it. He's giving you a command. It's not an option. If you want to be obedient, don't get drunk, but on the other hand, be filled with the Spirit. As a drunk man is under the control of alcohol, so a Christian is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. What a powerful thought. When a person is intoxicated, they're under the control of something else, aren't they? And when you are filled with the Spirit, you're under the control of the Holy Spirit. And he's, He commands that for us. You see, I don't think that very many Christians think that to be filled with the Spirit is commanded of them. I think they think it's an option. This is for the super saints. Oh, to be filled with the Spirit, that was written for preachers and evangelists and maybe the deacons, but for everybody? No. It's a command for every single believer. It's the imperative mode. It is not an option. Be filled with the Spirit. Are you filled with the Spirit today? Do you think about being filled with the Spirit? Is it, is it something that's in your consciousness, on your radar? Boy, I hope it is. It's commanded, first of all. It's imperative. Number two, it's in the present continuous tense. The present continuous tense, which he doesn't mean go get filled, but he means be filled and be filled continuously. It's a continuous idea. It's be being filled, if I could say it like that. It's not very grammatically good, uh, correct? But it's be being filled with the Spirit. In other words, all day long, I'm being filled with the Spirit. Which reminds me then that this is not some sort of emotional excess. This is not some sort of fanaticism. This is something I can do all day long wherever I am. I'm at work and I can be being filled with the Spirit. I can be under the control of the Holy Spirit, you see. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, I'm to be reminded I am to be controlled by Him and not by just myself. The Bible never says, for example, and I hear people talk a lot, and they use this phrase about being baptized with the Holy Ghost. You know the Bible never commands a Christian to be baptized with the Holy Ghost. It's not even in the Bible. Now, what, the reason for that is when you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you, doesn't he? And you want the proof text on this, Romans 8, 9. It says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not even saved. 
And the Holy Spirit came in at the moment of my salvation. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotional high. It's not, it's not getting out of control. It's getting into control, in fact. And so the Holy Spirit came into me at the moment of my salvation. And that's what being baptized with the Spirit, where it's used in the Bible in context, means. But you and I, if we're Christians, we've already been indwelled. The Holy Spirit lives within me already. So he's not telling me to do it again, but he's telling me to be filled. And the idea is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit all day, everywhere I go, whatever I'm doing, when I'm at work, when it's recreation, when I was watching a ball game yesterday, it's whatever I'm doing, I'm under the control of the Spirit of God. It's also in the passive voice, number three. It's in the passive voice, which means grammatically that the verb is acted upon. The verb doesn't act. It means that this is something the Lord does for me. Of course, I'm to pray about it. I'm, I'm going to tell you at the end of the message a little bit about how we can be filled. But the idea is that when I'm filled with the Spirit, the the Lord is doing the work. I'm not working this up. He is working it down inside of me. And then there's one other thing. It's in the plural. It's in the plural. So it's not just for the super saints, and it's not for some people. It's for every believer. It's in the plural. Everyone is to be filled with the Spirit. And I open my Bible there, and there are five groups that are specifically mentioned. And for example, uh, six groups actually, go down to verse 21. I didn't read that far, but verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another. So it's for all of us to have a submissive spirit. In verse 21, it's for the wives to submit themselves to their own husbands. And you can't do that lady, without the Holy Spirit filling you. And then for the husbands in verse number uh, 25 or whatever, husbands, love your wives. And husbands, we can't do that the way the Bible instructs us to do unless we're filled with the Spirit. And then you go over to chapter 6 and verse 1 is children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And what is it that helps a child be obedient? It's to be, that's right, a spirit-filled child. And then we go down to verse 5, and we have servants or um, employees. Be obedient to your bosses or your employers. And then we go down a little further, and in verse 9, we have the employers, masters. So if you're a husband, a wife, a child, an employer, an employee, and everyone in general, we have, a, we have instructions for how to live our lives. And we're told the energy, the power to do that is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit, we've had so much false teaching on this. Oh, believe me, and the airwaves are still full of it. You would think it's some experience like they had at Pentecost that we have, or if we don't have that, we're not filled with the Spirit. I've never had that experience, and I don't know anyone who has much. In fact, I don't know anyone who has. I know people who have 
claimed it, but I don't know for a fact anyone that's experienced a Pentecost. I like what Adrian Rogers said. Of course, I like everything Adrian says, but I like this. He said, we don't need another Pentecost any more than we need another Bethlehem or we need another Calvary. At Bethlehem, Jesus came one time. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon all the believers and indwelled them one time. We don't need a repeat of that. It's available for everybody today. And we don't need another Calvary. Praise God, Jesus doesn't need to die but once. And so these experiences that we read about in the Bible, they're finished products, if you will. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is something. It's not a one-time emotional experience of some kind. What is it? It is God's Spirit coming upon a, a Christian. And it's the Holy Spirit coming upon them, and there's something about them. And it's very difficult, really, for me to articulate. There's something about them you can't explain by their intellect. You say, well, he's smart, but that's not what the Holy Spirit's doing. You don't explain it by intellect. You don't explain it by personality. You, you don't explain it by talent. A person filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't explain their life by the circumstances of their life or their heredity or their upbringing. There's something, there's some dynamic in their life that goes beyond all those things and can only be explained by the presence of God upon their life. You take, for example, a D.L. Moody from long ago, and he was a shoe clerk, a shoe clerk. He never went to college a day in his life. And all these other pastors that had advanced terminal degrees from all these prestigious European universities and so on, and old Moody went out, and those other fellows had an empty building, and Moody had a full building. And those other fellows weren't seeing anybody saved, and Moody was seeing people saved by multitudes. Just a coarse, crude, uneducated man. He preached one day, and this lady came up. I guess she was an English teacher. She said, Mr. Moody, you made 87 grammatical errors in your sermon. And they said he pointed to his tongue. Lady, I'm using this for Jesus. Who are you using yours for? <laughs> in other words, there was something about Moody you couldn't explain by education or personality or talent or the circumstances of his life. It was beyond all that, but it was God's anointing, God's power upon his life. Now, you, you and I are not Moody. We're not going to go to England and around the world and preach to millions of people. But do you know something? The Lord wants you and me to be filled with his spirit just as much right there on our job. You know what being filled with the Spirit is going to do? It's going to make you appear to be like a little Jesus. You're going to be so much like Jesus that people are going to see that. They're going to take notice. The filling of the Spirit of God. It produces a Christian lifestyle. You look at Christians today and oh my, we're so much like the world, you can't tell the difference in a Christian and a non-Christian. 
It's so mixed up. It's so gray. Everybody, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've received Christ. Yes, I'm a believer. But their life is no different. They have no more victory in their life than the unsaved person has in their life. And this passage teaches me that when I'm filled with the Spirit, it's going to affect the way I walk. My Christian walk, in fact, go back with me to the book of Galatians, just one book back. And in the book of Galatians, chapter number 5, he uses a different term. This I say then, Paul writes, walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit first, and then after you're filled with the Spirit, continue on walking in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and if you do, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you walk in the Spirit, then those sins that defeat us, we're going to have power, a power in our life to defeat them. Now, in Ephesians 5, go back and he kind of describes what that walk looks like. Verse 15, see that you walk there. See, he's picking up the term. There, the filling of the Spirit is the empowerment that we have after we become Christians to walk. The filling of the Spirit empowers us to walk in the Spirit. And he talks about the walk in verse 15. Walk circumspectly. We don't use that word much today. It means very, very carefully. Circumspect, circumspectfully means to walk very, very purposefully, if you will. It's like a man walking through a minefield. If I knew this area were mined on the platform here, I would look to see there wasn't any little wire sticking out of the ground, and I'd put my foot here. And then I'd probably stop and look again. And a man walking through a minefield is going back and forth. And he's looking carefully because he knows if he steps in the wrong place, he's going to blow himself up. Somebody described it like this. He said, here's a cat walking on a wooden fence. And on each side, there's a couple big bulldogs. That cat is walking circumspectfully. Carefully, 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 because he knows if he falls off that fence, what's going to happen. And Paul is saying that's the way a Christian's got to walk. We've got to walk carefully in the world. We've got to think before we put our next foot down. What is this going to do to me, to my testimony, to the glory of God in my life? I've got to think about my walk, walk circumspectfully. Numbers Verse number 16, and then we think about our time differently when we're filled with the Spirit, redeeming the time because the days are evil, and boy, they sure are, aren't they? Why are they evil? And we don't want to waste one minute of our life. We want to be careful that we plan our time, evaluate our time, use every second of our time because, believe me, it's fleeting. It goes so fast. When you get to where I am in life, every day, I can say this with all candor, with all honesty, with my hand on the Bible, I get up and one of the first things I think, thank you, Lord, for another day. Thank you for time. 
Thank you for time. I know my days are numbered, but by the way, if you're 21, yours are too, and you just don't know, but I know when, you're, when I'm where I am that my days are shorter, and I want to redeem my time. I could get off on a whole bunch of hobby horses and just preach that. I mean, just preach the hair off of that. You know, like talking about cell phones. The greatest waste of time ever invented in history. And yes, it's a blessing in many ways, but why is it everywhere I go, people are going? And you know what? I get caught up in that. You think I have victory over that without thinking about it? No, I don't. I Google one thing, and it comes up, and there's something else. And, it says, and I said, well, that sounds interesting. I'm over here. And I look at my watch. Fifteen minutes is gone. Redeem the time. Watch your time. Value your time. Time is the thing that is most valuable in our lives. And a spirit-filled person, he says, don't waste it. Redeem it. Get it back and use it. And in verse 17, he says, a spirit-filled person will understand what the will of the Lord is. A person who is filled with the Spirit is looking to discover God's will in their life. And where do you find God's will? You always find God's will in God's Word. Don't look for God's will in the way you feel or think or what you're hearing from somebody. The will of God is always associated with what? With the Word of God. Don't ever try to separate the two, the will of God and the Word of God. And then look in verse 19. A spirit-filled person is singing when they come to church, but maybe in the shower or wherever you are. It's the joy of the Lord, the praise is flowing out of us. We're praising the Lord, and singing is, just, is the primary way we do it. And then look in verse 20. A spirit-filled person is giving thanks always, not just this week, but for always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have a thankful spirit, a grateful spirit. Now, there's a whole lot more that I could talk about regarding the filling of the Holy Spirit. In fact, I have another whole page of notes here. But I, you know what? I think maybe it would be more helpful to you if I told you specifically some hows, a how-to. How do I become filled with the Holy Spirit? Because it might be somebody sitting here never even heard this preached on before. And you say, I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. And I love the Lord. I never have understood what this is all about, this being filled with the Spirit of God, being controlled by the Lord Himself. So I'm going to give you just four or five things here real quickly of how to be filled with the Spirit of God. Number one, I would say, make absolutely sure that you're saved because the Holy Spirit of God is not for unbelievers. The most basic thing I could say is it starts with salvation. And as I've already told you, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you. And when I use the word saved, what I mean is that you understood at some point in your life that you were a sinner that your sins have separated you from God, 
that you could not save yourself no matter how hard you tried, no matter how disciplined you were, no matter how dutifully you were, no matter how moral you, morally you lived, you could not save yourself. You needed rescuing from your sins by someone other than yourself. And then you heard that God loved you and that Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. And I'm giving you the simple gospel right now as quickly and simply as I can, but I never want to pass over it. It's obvious in this context, but I don't want to pass over it. And so you understood that Jesus Christ became a man as we're about to celebrate. And he came to the earth and he lived a perfect life and he went to the cross And at the cross, he bore all the sins of the whole world, my sin, your sin, the sins of the whole world, the the sin, the first sin that Adam committed to the last sin committed by whoever that will be. All that sin was piled upon Jesus Christ, all the responsibility for that, and he died. He shed his blood, and his blood was the payment to God for the sins of humanity. And then on the third day, you know the story of how he arose from the grave. Now, the Bible says if you repent of your sins, change your mind about your sins, turn from them, and put your faith and confidence and trust and dependence on those facts that I've just enumerated, the gospel, that you're saved. And I know 90-some percent of the people in this room are saved people, but this is going beyond this room. And I know that in an audience this size, there's got to be some people that are not saved and others that are not sure you're saved. And I can't pass by the most important thing of all. You won't be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not for unsaved people. That's for those who have trusted Christ. The first thing that the Bible commands after you're saved is baptism. Baptism is the mark of the Christian, the sign of the Christian that were commanded of the Lord. The very first thing people in the Bible did after they were saved was to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. In that, we picture the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, if you really thirst and hunger and desire to be filled with the Spirit, salvation and baptism. Then once you're saved and you know it, and most of the people here would qualify there, being filled with the Spirit requires me to empty myself of my sins. You can't fill up something that's already full of something else. So, number two, confess and forsake every known sin in your life. Not only confess it Confession, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us. But listen to me. Confession implies not only that I, conf- that I speak to the Lord and acknowledge my sins, but that I'm willing to forsake my sins. We don't confess sin and remain in sin, or we don't have forgiveness. Confession infers and implies a forsaking of the sin that we know is in our life. So we make sure of our salvation and first act of obedience, baptism. We confess and forsake every known sin. And then thirdly, 
We surrender ourselves to God's will as revealed in His Word. We yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit. Lord, right now I'm asking you to take control of my life. And you've told me in your Word what that means, your will. And to the best of my ability, I'm yielding myself. I'm surrendering to that. And then... You just simply pray and ask the Lord to fill you with His Spirit. And again, I don't think we're talking about some explosion. Moody said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was walking down Wall Street in New York City where he lived at the time. And he said, suddenly this impression came upon me. I, I have to have the Holy Spirit's power in my life to do my work. He said, I ducked into a little alleyway, and I found this little alcove, and I went there, and I got on my knees before God, and He filled me with the Holy Spirit. He never mentioned speaking in tongues. He never mentioned some great emotional experience. But He said, I came out of there, and from that day forward, when I preached, it was different. God was working in my life. And you and I are not moody. But you know what? God wants to use you wherever you are. He will use you wherever you are to the degree that you're surrendered to His Holy Spirit. You're, you operate a business, customers are coming in. You're a doctor or a nurse or some professional, your clients are coming in. You're around people. You're a salesman, you're in school, whatever you do, you can be the only Jesus that they will ever see in many cases, but you'll have to be filled with the Spirit of God. He will have to be in control of your life. You see, everything about me wants to run my life. I want to control me and the things around me and sometimes other people. And I can't. But I can let him come. And through an absolute surrender to him, he can come and control me through the instructions he gives me in his word. And his word and his spirit always work together. Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? <laughs> well, I can get filled with the Holy Spirit pretty easy. But I have to pray about that every single day. I have to go to the Lord over and over and over. Somebody says, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I've been filled with the Holy Spirit hundreds of times. My problem is I'm like Moody. I leak. And I'm filled with the Spirit, and things are just right with the Lord. And then, well, I do something that empties me to some degree. But, you know, the Lord knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we're made of dust. He understands you're not perfect. That picadillo, that sin, that blemish in your life, I'm certainly not minimizing it, but the Lord, He knows you're going to do that. And you go back to Him again. You yield yourself. You confess your sin. And you pray and say, Lord Jesus, I need you in my life. I'm depending on you. And he'll come and he will 
take control of your life and fill you again. Will you bow your head with me in prayer?